0: Welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Global Parents for Eczema Research is an international network of parents that advocates for better treatments and management options for children with eczema. JEEPER is led and comprised of parents of children with eczema and was formed in 2015 to address the critical need for research that answers questions of importance to patients and families. Learn more about JEEPER and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast at parentsforeczemaresearch.org.
1: I'm so happy to introduce our guest today, Dr. Ian Miles. He is head of the brand new epithelial therapeutics unit at the NIH. And this unit is interesting. It was created to evaluate the efficacy and safety of topical live bacterial treatment for eczema specifically, which is really exciting that there's this interest at the NIH. We found out about Dr. Miles because he published a study recently, which we shared with the group, That showed that adults and patients treated with a sugar spray containing a type of bacteria called R-mucosa showed improvements in eczema symptoms and also had less need for topical steroids, which is something that parents care a lot about. Interestingly, he's also a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service Corps. And in that capacity, he's done some really interesting work, including working in West Africa on a trial of the Ebola virus vaccine. So super interesting background, really appreciate the work that you're doing, and welcome to our call today, Dr. Miles. What is the introduction of this bacteria, of this R-mucosa bacteria in the spray? What's going on on the skin? What's happening, do you think, that's causing... Amelioration of the eczema symptoms. Is it overcrowding the staff? Is it what is it doing that's translating to a benefit to these patients?
2: Yeah. So the the short version is that uh, our mucosa is activating the pathways in your skin that are there for natural turnover and renewal. Um, every epithelial surface, so uh, that skin, lung, GI tract, um, and others every one of those, as we're aware, right, is in a constant exposure to the environment, constant wear and tear, every little scratch, things you don't even think of, not a cut or something big, just a tiny little scratch. The skin has to to fix that. And that pathway is very distinct. And the healthy strains of our mucosa, but not the strains from the disease from patients with eczema, the healthy strains are turning on the kind of natural skin renewal um, mechanisms. And so that's what we think is is helpful. And perhaps why, I don't, I'm not trying to paint all of eczema as a defect of, you know, you're missing our mucosa. But we do think that maybe patients with eczema, their, pro, their underlying problem is their, their microbiome is not turning on the natural turnover correctly. And so since you never quite repair the little damages um, that come on during your life, that those kind of build up and that turns into an inflammatory process. Um, So that's what it's doing to the the human skin. For staph aureus, our mucosa makes very specific lipids that have the ability to kill staph aureus. So it's making its own versions of antibiotics. Um, And that's how it's killing staph.
1: That's really interesting. So it could be two things. One, it's killing the staph, which we know tends to overgrow on patients with eczema. And then it's also helping the skin repair itself through cell turnover. So just regenerating the skin when it has damage to it through the course of just living. Um, Our mucosa helps with that self-repair that maybe is faulty on skin with eczema. So maybe two ways that it's helping. Correct. So I'm going to ask one more and then I'll open it up here. So I guess this is an interesting one to me. Um, One of the things that you argue in, in your paper is that the genetic piece of eczema may be less of a deal than we thought it is. And that, in fact, it's ways that we compromise the skin through use of preservatives in things like cosmetics and soap, things like parabens that are contributing to the prevalence of eczema because they inhibit beneficial bacteria and encourage staff growth. So by using these products, you're kind of inadvertently or accidentally messing with your skin's microbiome. Can you say more about that link and expand a little bit on what you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So the the first part for genetics, I would be an outlier in the field. A lot of the older people are still of the belief that the disease is 80% genetic and Mm -hmm we won't have time to get into it, but you can ask later, I guess, if people are still interested. There's just no evidence for that. When people actually start to look at big populations of people with eczema and people without eczema, and then they actually measure genetic differences, they rarely find major genetic differences. And when they do, it accounts for maybe about 5% of the disease. Now, 5 percent's not nothing. In theory, that would be one out of every 20 kids. And then the disease is- prevalent as eczema. That's a lot of people. So I don't, I'm not dismissive of genetics, but that says that, you know, something on the order of at least 19 out of 20 kids have the disease for some environmental reason. There's nothing wrong with their genetics. There's nothing wrong with the way their skin is functioning. Their skin is getting bad environmental cues and that's leading to um, the downstream problems. So what we thought was that, you know, you expose, you don't even think about it. You expose yourself to 50 to 100 chemicals on your skin a day. And there, many of them are tested to just to make sure that they're safe against human cells. But we, no one knew, you know, no one had, would have thought to test them against um, how they behave against the, the bacteria. Some of them are intentionally antibacterial. You'll see some of the hand soaps advertises that. Uh, so we looked at, um, there are these kind of commercially available collections of chemicals the bad news is those collections are selected for for chemicals that human beings can have allergic reactions to. So there are people who, if exposed to parabens, will just break out, have an allergy, eczema or no eczema. They might just have a paraben allergy. And the collection of chemicals, the kind of sampling that we could get were basically ones where it was well-established that a human being could have a response to. So we haven't even begun to get into all of the other potential um, exposures that you might um, put on your skin, that maybe you can't, maybe humans can't make an allergic response to, but could still kill or influence your bacteria. Um, one of the things that we're again writing up now, as part of a different paper, is we've kind of come up with our own concoction, our own formulation of things that you could put into your lotion that would cause healthy strains of Roseomonas to proliferate, disease-associated strains of Roseomonas to go away. Um, and would also kill staph aureus. So I definitely think it's some environmental exposure that we're putting our bodies through that are throwing off our microbiome on top of, you know, topical products. Then you'd have to layer in the stuff that we're eating and, um, you know, our behaviors, our stress. So there's a lot of things that, that go into it, but we do think we could intervene by basically doing a more thorough evaluation of all the different topical exposures that we put ourselves through, see which of those are safe for the microbiome and which of those are not, and then basically just get the stuff that we know is going to mess up your microbiome out of the circulation, basically off the market, and leave ourselves with you know, products that still have preservatives and can still clean, but won't um, cause long, potential long-term damage uh, to your microbiome.
1: That would be amazing. I think that's what we all want. Just really, I think, confusing for parents to be able to navigate this and know what are those substances, which may actually be causing harm to their child when they're trying to maintain their you know, their skin with, with creams and different things.
2: Yeah, and, and even, even for us, we found it very difficult because you'll never get the companies are not going to tell you the dosing. They put, you know, it'll be on the list, right? It'll say methylparaben or something, which is one of the bad ones. But I don't, I don't know the concentration. If there's a ton of it in there, it's going to be very bad. If there's just a drop of it, it might not be important. And then the other thing we found is it's kind of like, you know, uh, for people who take medications, you could have two drugs that by themselves are completely safe, but you take them together and you could get really sick and potentially die. We find the same things where if you take two topicals that. Independently are healthy for Roseomonas, and combine them. Suddenly, they're killing it. So we've had to. That's what took us a while is to really try to figure out what, what's the exact mix and the, the exact balance. And so then the way it works at NIH is submit it to some office, and then they'll go reach out to some of the private sector companies and see if any of them are interested in basically making a formulation that should um, protect your microbiome while still offering you know, all of its other benefits.
1: That's fascinating. Sounds pretty complicated. Um, I'm going to pause and invite questions from
3: the line. Yes, I have a question. You said that it was still having an effect to 8 to 12 months later. And I'm wondering if you were able to look at the the microbiome of the skin of people 8 to 12 months later and see evidence that the spray that had been used... Or the strain of the um, mucosa is it still present or is it in some way changed the microbiome to be more healthy I'm just wondering how long it lasts on the skin
2: yeah, g- good question so um, we did at, at the follow-up visits uh, we cultured and we can grow our mucosa off of our patients whereas when they came in they didn't we couldn't grow any our mucosa or the our mucosa we grew looked diseased, we can kind of tell by just the look on the plate. So we were able to grow our mucosa that looks exactly like the strains that we use for therapy. Scientifically though, officially, I can't, I can't say that's my bacteria until we genetically verify that. And we just haven't yet. They're in the process of deriving the ability for me to do that. So it won't be a hard test to do. So once I can verify the genetics of the strain that I put on the patient, Um, are the ones that we use as a therapy, then the definitive answer will be yes. In the interim, I feel confident that I'm growing, you know, the bacteria wasn't there when we started. It's clearly there when we finish. So I do think that it's kind of stuck around and continues to provide benefit long term. Um, We did look at the overall picture of the microbiome during treatment. And what was interesting, and I think a little bit comforting for me, is that their microbiome does not become some giant pool of rosy monus or our mucosa. It kind of, our mucosa takes up its little tiny plot that it would normally take up, and just the rest of the mm-hmm. microbiome looks healthy again. So it's not obliterating or shoving everything else out of the way, it's taking up shop, and then everything else seems to fit into its same place. Fantastic, thank you.
1: Here's a question from Christy Cox. She's a parent in Michigan she's wondering how often you would have to apply this type of spray treatment and then also wondering how long the skin stayed clear after the treatment period.
2: Yeah, so we, uh, in the initial study, we did twice a week for 12 weeks and then every other day for four weeks. So in the placebo control, we're going to average that out. And so you'll apply it three times a week um, for four months, the patients will. Um, we don't think because of the fact that Rosimonas just kind of seems to be picking its spot. I don't think that treating longer will gain huge benefit, um, or treating with higher doses or more frequently. So the short version is you'd have to apply it three times a week for about four months. And then the skin did remain clear, um, at that same eight to 12, uh, week follow-up. So, you know, again, people weren't a hundred percent, not. You know, not everybody was 100% better. Like I said, on average, they're about 70% better. And then when they came back, they were still about 70% better. It has been very remarkable in some ways um, to see people who said, you know, hey, I have stopped all my steroids for the last eight months. Um, in the new study, um, every body site that the pediatric patients treated got better. For, for those who got better. We had two people who um, didn't seem to respond but uh, for all the patients that got better, if they treated their hands, they got better, their face, their chest, their back. Whereas in the initial study, it did not appear that has helped on the hands of adults. And I don't know if that's because um, just you know, 40, 50 years of built up damage and inability to turn the skin over is giving too much of, a, too much of an ask to hope that the bacteria will fix that or if the hand disease is something completely different. But I wanted to mention that, you know, the skin is clearing, and everywhere that they treat clears and seems to stay clear that 8 to 12, 12 months out.
1: Could you just, uh, again, for those on the line, remind us the average severity of the eczema of the kids and adults in your study? Was it mild, moderate, severe?
2: Uh, it averaged out to moderate. We we took everybody. Everybody tended to get about the same, better as a percentage of their initial kind of starting point. People, people who responded were getting about 60-70% better. We'll have pictures in the next publication of a girl who had full-body disease and full-body resolution, um, and then patients who, whose disease was pretty mild, who, again, was still present, but, but got much better.
1: Thank you. A follow-up question from Christy. She, she just wondered if you could just comment on why applying the good bacteria to the skin may be more beneficial than, say, taking oral probiotics or are, are both strategies needed to address both gut health and skin health?
2: Again, I, I don't want to imply like 30 years from now, we're going to still be using just three kinds of our the treatment. I think this is the initial opening. I think as years go on, these com- these treatments are going to get more complicated as more things are added in. I absolutely believe that oral probiotics are going to have an overlapping plus additional set of their own benefits. A lot of the immune system development is driven by gut microbiome, and I I think you know looking very long term, I would expect that there would be top topical probiotics that are multiple different bacteria, maybe even some fungal um, isolates in there, along with kind of an oral um, probiotics. I don't think that the oral probiotics would be capable of activating the skin turnover pathways just because those Bacteria you take into the gut would be incapable of hitting the cells in the exact right way. Um, so I don't think they would be able to replace this specific response, but I do think their overall benefit on immune function will just be an added benefit that maybe one day people are using both um, at the same time.
1: Great. Thank you. Any
3: other questions on the line? Um Thinking practically, being uh, an end user of something like this in the future, I wonder when you're doing a, a study with patients, you have a lab, cultures your mucosa and then you put it straight onto a patient's skin. Um, if this was something that I would be able to use down the line with my son, um, how practical is it to take a live bacteria and keep it alive to put on my son's skin every week or so? Do it? Would it be something that would survive in a fridge? Would I have to learn to culture it myself? Or would I have to have it sent to me on a regular
2: basis? How does it go with transport and storage? Uh, this is the problem with the live therapeutics. So we freeze dry it before you, it, when we hand it to the patients and it goes in the bottle. And then before each okay. treatment, they would, they would squirt this little bit of water in there to bring it back. And then it would come back to life and they could spray it. Because there's nothing okay. in there but sugar, Um, Mm -hmm. the bacteria doesn't have anything to survive on, so they don't do very well for very long.
1: Just kind of following up on that, as you envision a commercial product, what might that look like for people?
2: Yeah, so what it should um, look like is you would go to your pharmacy and they would, uh, you know, however many vials at a time, um, but you pick up a month's worth, so you get 12 vials uh, of freeze-dried mucosa, and then 12 sterile water packets that are kind of pre-measured, and then you would go home, and like I said, before each use, you squirt the water into the bacteria, um, you let it shake up and dissolve for about a couple of minutes, and then you spray, throw all of that away um, afterwards. So practically, that's what it would look like, and we think the advantage is that, you know, it might be a little cumbersome to pick it up because it's not like 12 little pills. It would be, they take up a little size, but um, because you'd only need it theoretically for about four, months of that, even if maybe you needed to use it every once in a while, um, you know, go back to it. We don't think that would be too burdensome, especially compared to you know, what the average patient is suffering through with things multiple times a day.
1: Yeah, and and I, uh, you know, I'd love to hear from some of the other parents on on the call, but I think you know, this type of approach is extremely attractive to parents, especially with young children. It's comparably safe with it sounds like, with few side effects compared to steroids, and there's a lot of worry in our community around the long-term use of steroids on especially children, so, you know, I think the hassle perhaps of, you know, having to mix this up or go to the pharmacy would be a hassle families were willing to put up with, at least in my estimation, but curious what what others think. Hi, this is Carrie,
4: and my son um, is currently on um, the Aaron regimen, and it's worked really well for us,
1: and... Can you, hear Can you just uh, maybe explain what the air regimen is for Dr. Meyer?
4: Oh yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a compounded antibiotic steroid and moisturizer. So it attacks the staff while reducing the inflammation and the moisturizer just carries less steroid a further distance. So, and then you taper slower than you would a, a typical steroid. So um, like I said, I, I use it sparingly on my a uh, son who's almost seven, but I'm always looking for a slight edge. And of course, no prescription would be, you know, topical steroid would be amazing. Do you know about, do you have any idea how long it would take from the stage where you are now to getting it to patients, like availability, and then how would it come into play with, with a compound like the Aaron Regimen?
2: Yes, I first heard of the Aaron Regimen on your previous podcast. So went had a good chance to go um, look it up. The, the big antibiotic in there is mupiracin, and that causes rosymonis to proliferate while killing staph. Now, I'm not saying Aaron regimen works because of rosymonis proliferation. What I'm saying is I back and understand the thought process of saying, here's something that would be beneficial to the microbiome and reduce inflammation that would be beneficial. So, mupiracin will not kill rosymonis, so I think it would be fine um, to use biggest advantage of using the live bacteria is that long-term impact mm-hmm. so if you know if you have a patient who's doing well on an errand regimen and then they stop the chances that they might slide back are going to be a lot higher because you're just not use, you're not exposing yourself to the drug anymore whereas the ability to put a live bacteria on there and have it just stay there now maybe you kill it off one day because you need antibiotics for an ear infection or maybe you kill it off because you use a particularly nasty soap or whatever And you got to reapply, but for the most part, the ability to put that on the skin and just let it sit there and do its job and not have to reapply is the biggest advantage in my mind of what these kind of therapies can offer. In terms of how far we are from, you know, the people on the call just walking down to their local pharmacy and picking it up, I don't think five years is unreasonable. Um, I will say, in science, you are always um, unpleasantly surprised at how long um, things take. I think the FDA has very quickly come around to the idea of using live bacteria as therapy. We'll have to see, we're going to the FDA now to kind of pitch this as what they call a breakthrough and that will allow for maybe some reduced regulatory pain and suffering. Um, I don't think it would be, you know, if you told me we were on the market in five years, I, I wouldn't be shocked by that. Five, I mean, five is a long time, especially got a two-year-old who's suffering from the disease.
1: Well, yeah, and Dr. Miles, I, five years for those on the call. I know that sounds like a really long time, and some of your kids may even grow out of eczema in that time. But I, I just like to put forward. I think this is a really important line of inquiry for kids that are being born with eczema now, and w- in a way that they could have a safe treatment um, that's better than what you know our kids have have had to choose from. I do have. Uh, Three other questions here from parents. One in Tennessee, one in Australia, and one in Baltimore, it looks like. But all of them have to do with how soon will this be available. (laughs) I think you answered that. We're looking at five years at the soonest, unfortunately. Okay, well, with, with that, I'd like to say thank you so much for donating your time to chat with us. It's been an amazing conversation, really enlightening. Thank you very much, everybody, and have a great weekend.
0: You've been listening to the eczema breakthrough podcast to learn more and join global parents for eczema research, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parents for eczema Thank you. And we'll see you next time on the eczema breakthrough podcast.